Welcome to Convention Pulpit, Wesleyan Voices Past and Present, brought to you through the Ministry of Inner Church Holiness Convention. Visit our website for an entire library of great sermons and more information on this ministry, www.ihconvention.com. The sermon you're about to hear was preached many years ago by Albert Barr. It's a classic, entitled, Whosoever Will May Come. I trust you will enjoy this wonderful message. Keep passing it on, keep passing it on, keep passing it on, and on. Keep passing it on, keep passing it on, keep passing it on, and on. Would you like to stand with me, rest yourselves a little, and reverence God's word? Turn to John chapter 3, probably, in fact, no doubt, the most memorized, well-known of all the scriptures, John 3, 16. I think that I have 16 sermons on John 3, 16, if I'm thinking correctly. I'm not going to preach all 16 of them today. In fact, I'm not sure this is even going to be preaching. I would just simply like to share with you today. But John 3:16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Heavenly Father, would you encourage and challenge our faith today for the whosoevers? In Jesus' name, amen. Now, in just a moment, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand in response to a question, but I want you to listen carefully to the total question. Do not raise your hand until I tell you to. How many of you would be able in a moment to raise your hand and say by that, either I have a very real and deep spiritual need or maybe not even spiritual, but a very real, deep need that burdens me heavily in my own life. Or I am praying and carrying a very heavy burden for a loved one or a friend. Now, if you have to think more than a second on that, that's not what I'm asking for. What I'm asking for are those burdens that weigh so heavily upon your heart till they are there all the time. But you would say to that, either a personal need or a need that you carry a burden for in a loved one or friend, and you would raise your hand and simply say that is true. I'm going to guess that it would be true of all of us. Rare would be the person who was a Christian who did not, could not respond positively to that. Well, here we have, for God so loved the world that whosoever It is one of the fundamental truths of the gospel, as we've just read, that whosoever will may come. 
The songwriter, the chorus writer put it, whosoever will, whosoever will, spread the proclamation over vale and hill. Tis a loving father calls the wanderer home, whosoever will may come. It's not only the prime message of the Gospels, as per John 3.16, but it is the fundamental message of the historical record of the Acts that the early apostles, they preached a whosoever gospel. Do you hear Peter in Acts 2.21 on the day of Pentecost? And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Or to Cornelius in Acts 10.43, to him, speaking of Christ, gave all the prophets witness that through his name whosoever believeth in him shall receive remission of sins. It is further a vital ingredient of the doctrinal epistles of the New Testament. Paul, Romans 10.13, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Or John, 1 John 5.1, whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Further, I would remind us that it is a basic tenet of the Wesleyan-Armenian position that whosoever will may come. You know what that means? Now, at first, I know that this message is going to sound like a wrong message for this crowd, but hang on to your hat. I trust it won't be before we're through. Whosoever will may come. Do you realize that that means, for example, that none are predestinated to be lost? There is a doctrine popular in the land that says before God ever framed the world, he predestined or foreordained some to be saved and some to be lost. And if you are one of those happy ones that was predestined to be saved, you will be saved, do what you will. And if indeed you were predestined to be lost, you will be lost, seek all you may. Now the Bible in fact does teach a predestination and a foreordination, but it doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that. I heard a very well-known radio preacher. If I named him, his name would be familiar to you all. I'm certainly not here to knock him. Many things he says are biblical, true, and good. But he believes this doctrine, and at times he answers questions that are written in on his radio broadcast. And he had been dealing heavily with this very subject. And someone wrote in, I'm sure they were being facetious. Surely no one would actually feel this way. But someone wrote in and said, do you mean that if I am predestined to go to heaven, I have to go to heaven if I don't want to? And he answered, if you are predestined to go to heaven, you will go to heaven if God has to drag you through the pearly gates with a log chain hooked behind a tractor. Sorry, people, but no one's going to heaven that way. If you go to heaven, it'll be because you want to. It'll be because you will to. Whosoever will may come. This was a popular doctrine even in the days of the Wesley revival. And, and John Wesley, uh, Charles Wesley, the singer, the songwriter of Methodism, wrote with biting sarcasm a song that we no longer sing, but maybe we need to. At least in my area, this is a popular idea. And Charles wrote, The righteous God consigned men over to their doom, then sent the Savior of mankind, to damn them from the womb, to damn for doing not that which they could not do, for not believing the report of that which was not true. 
Oh, God, that any child of thine should so horribly think of thee. Lo, I my every hope resign, if all may not find grace with thee. And the fact is, people, that whosoever will may come. Now, that's a marvelous truth, and I think it's one that we sometimes lose sight of. It means that no one seeks God in vain. It means that it's never too late for those who seek God. It is part of the good news of the gospel that you, sir, you, ma'am, may have your spiritual need met. I remember several years ago hearing Brother Shmuel at Hope Sound make a statement that uh, struck home with me, Brother Shmuel, and and I've uh, remembered it ever since. He said, Jesus Christ walks through this world and finds impossible cases nowhere. And that's true. There are no impossible cases with God. It means that none have gone too far, that none need despair, that you do not have to be lost, that you are not fated or predestined to be lost. It means that it does not matter what you have done. You don't know what I did, preacher. Don't need to know. <laughs> There's not beyond the cleansing blood and the magnificent grace of our God. This Corinthian church that Brother Shmuel's been so ably expounding from the epistle to, do you find, remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, chapter 6, we find these verses. This is a pretty sorry bunch. Listen to this. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind. We're talking about gross moral perversions such as are common in our day. Nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners, nor uh, extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. Well, see, I told you, preacher, that's right, but listen to the next verse. And such were some of you, Corinthian Christians. <laughs> That's what you were, but now you are sanctified, you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus, your voice, you are saved by the Spirit of our God. People, let's not try to be more holy than God. Let's not try to disparage the grace of God, but rather let us magnify it. And yet I realize that to a great extent, this, you would say, well, Brother Barr, this is a wonderful evangelical truth. Uh, oh my, that we had uh, sinners here to hear it, but you're talking to people who have made a great effort to come to a holiness convention. And yet, people, we need to keep this in mind, too. Because it means that that burden that you're carrying for an unsaved loved one, a lost friend, a wayward child, a disobedient spouse, that the devil's come along long ago and said there's no hope anymore, they've gone too far, they're too entangled in sin, it is not hopeless with our God. They are not beyond the reach of our God. It means that our lost loved ones and friends are not hopeless. Well, Brother Barr, didn't God tell the prophet to quit praying for Saul? Didn't God tell Samuel that? Yes. I remember a student at Hope Sound many years ago when I was a young man and dinosaurs roamed the earth and I was a student at Hope Sound. Some young man said to Dr. Heron, did not God tell Samuel to quit praying for Saul? And with those piercing blue eyes, Brother Heron withered him down and said, But God never told you that. <laughs> Don't you start talking about giving up on people. Don't you start talking about God not saving the lost. In fact, it was Samuel himself who said, Moreover, as for me, God forbid that I should sin against the Lord, 
by ceasing to pray for you. Brother Barr, Brother Barr, can't a person blaspheme the Holy Ghost and be damned? Yes, yes, you can. But could I say something that I believe strongly? And as I mentioned early in this meeting, I recognize that, I, that some people will not agree with me, and that's your right, and you may be right and me wrong. But I feel very strongly about this. It bothers me. It troubles me. At times, I become righteously indignant. I have down through the years counseled scores of people, some young, some old, struggling, struggling, because early in their Christian lives they heard teaching that implied and made them feel and that the devil used to make them believe that they had crossed a deadline and were damned above sod and God could not save them. And all their lives they've struggled with this thing and it's warped their faith. I, I don't appreciate that kind of preaching. Just a short time ago, I was holding a meeting in another state. The meeting spanned two Sundays, and the pastor came to me and said, Brother Barr, would you be willing to speak to our young people service before the evening worship service? And I said, well, really, I'd rather not. It's just too long for people to sit there. They're going to hear me preach in the evening service and for me to start out in the, evening, in the young people service. But I said, if you'd like to do something different, I especially enjoy talking about science and the Bible, creation and evolution and the cosmologies. And... And I said, but if you want to just have a question and answer, period, I'd be, I'd be glad to do that. And so we announced we would do that. And as is the case in many of our churches, that young people service really is just a service. Everybody comes, young and old. And, and, uh, but finally, they got me up there, and I told them, I said, now, here are the questions. I, I really don't pretend to have knowledge in many areas, but here's a place where I, I enjoy reading and know just a little bit. And if you'd like to ask questions about anything, I'll be up front. If I don't know the answer, I'll tell you but especially about science and the Bible. A young man raised his hand. I said, yes, he asked about dinosaurs, and we answered his question the best we knew how. Someone else asked about the age of the earth and carbon-14 dating, and someone else asked about some other theories. There was sitting about halfway back a young mother, attractive young lady, a holiness young lady, very conservative. She played the organ in the services. Lovely woman, very talented, very intelligent. During the week, we would later, the pastor and his wife and myself would be invited to her home for a meal, meet her husband, who was not a Christian and did not attend the services, but uh, she was at that time in college at night, making excellent grades on very difficult subjects, a fine, intelligent, sincere young mother. But she raised her hand, and I said, yes, ma'am. She said, Brother Barr, if when a person was a young person, just a teenager, they gave their heart to the Lord and felt that God had called them to mission work, and, and they said they would go, but in, then as they got up in their late teens and early 20s, they drifted from the Lord, and, and they married out of the will of God, and now they have a husband that doesn't love the Lord, and they have a child, and they, they've gotten back to God, they think, but they, they can no longer go to the mission field. Is there any way that such a person can ever know peace and happiness and fulfillment in Christ? And I was glad to tell her, oh, yes, there certainly is, that God's second best is better than the, be the best the devil ever had to offer. And that, yes, you can, you can know. And I did my best to answer her question. I then went on to other questions. Two or three people asked questions, and she raised her hand again. I said, yes, ma'am. She said, Brother Barr. She said if a person knew the Lord when they were young and they promised him they'd go to the mission field, but, but then they wandered from the Lord and married out of the Lord's will and got entangled in sin, and now they've come back, but they're no longer able to... I thought I had answered that question. But I did again try to answer the question. The next Sunday night, they did exactly the same thing, and she did exactly the same thing. 
She was not crazy, she was not stupid, but she was hurting. Short time ago, a lady, I suspect she would be known to you all, a lady that I've known for many years, a good and godly woman. She and her husband have been in full-time Christian service much of their adult life, a holiness woman. The word came that she had tried to commit suicide. I went to see them. I knew the problem. It's a recurring problem, although I'm not aware that it ever went this far before. Many years ago, when I was a Sunday school teacher and they were in my class, about once a year, her husband would bring her to our home. She would be going through this terrible struggle that when she was a teenager, she had somehow blasphemed God and he departed from her and she could never get to heaven. She was damned above sod. And we would pray together and cry together and show her the promises and God would break through and encourage her heart and, and she would have peace and it would last for about another year. I do not understand the cycles of such things, but I know that someone with wrong teaching did a very tragic work on that woman. It's an awesome thing to propose to teach the word of God and to speak for God and God help us to be careful. I hear some awful things preach. I have a good friend. I love him. I owe him a tremendous debt because he's my, he was my pastor for years and brought me through many hard places, a good and godly man. But I remember one time in a sermon hearing him make these two statements in the same sermon. He was preaching away and he said, you know, we can't get saved till we quit our sin. And about five minutes later he said, you can't quit your sin till you get saved. I said, we've got big problems. We're in trouble. No question about it. We're in big trouble. Let me tell you something, people. If you convince someone that they cannot be saved, you have effectively damned them. Because the scripture says that he who cometh unto God must believe that he is and that he is the rewarder of them that diligently seek him. And yes, the Bible does teach that it is possible to blaspheme the Holy Ghost. I do not have time to go into that. I do not believe it is what many people say. It is most certainly not a casual thing. But I'll tell you what I do believe. I believe that that one, and I happen to believe that they are rare who have crossed such a deadline. I believe rare is the man or woman that has gone beyond the grace of God. Very rare. And I'll tell you one thing I believe about them. It is an awesome, sobering truth to know that such a thing is possible, and it certainly ought to keep all of us from ever being careless with God. But I'll tell you what, you won't find those kind of people seeking God around our altars whom God has given up, they couldn't care less. And don't ever tell me that some seeking, weeping, crying soul is beyond the grace of God. I don't believe it. The seeking, the longing, to any degree at all that one has a longing for God, it's there because God put it there. And he is not taunting nor playing games. He wants to meet their need. Are there not many, Brother Barr, who seek the Lord and do not find him? Oh, yes, yes, tragically so. But it's never God's fault. It may be that they come up against light they're not willing to walk in. It may be far more common and far more serious in my book in many ways because it's so more common. It's not the one who has somehow gone beyond the grace of God, but the someone who has made shipwreck of their faith, played games with God, 
decided it was easier to get forgiveness than it was to get permission and so they go out and do their thing and then when they've had their way they come back to God until the next time they want forbidden fruit and after a while they've reached a place they no longer believe themselves they no longer have confidence in their own repentance and they cannot believe and awesome is the plight of that person don't ever play games with God but it is not because God's grace could not reach them. Not because God does not love them that they find him not. Thank God for his grace. I would just point out to you before we go on that it's whosoever will. It is a matter of our wills. God will never violate our will. It is part of being man. It is part. And let me say something here in a day when mankind is being taught that we're nothing but animals not very good animals at that we're a lucky throw of the cosmic dice we're a blob of slime that evolved rationality we're a lonesome little animal out on an average planet circling a mediocre sun stuck out on the corner of a billion galaxies and we're nothing just an animal you wonder why people act like animals we've told them for generations that that's what they were anything anything that makes man man that sets him apart from the animals even in some cases where it may on the surface appear to be a humanistic situation needs to be fanned and preserved in this age where we're sinking back in to heathenism and savagery and God made man a marvelous creature if for no other reason in that he gave him a free will to choose God or not and God himself will never violate that free will either before or after you are saved nor before or after you are sanctified you remember there was a situation where a rich young ruler came to our Lord good master what must I do and Jesus looked down into his heart he knew his particular problem he told him something he doesn't tell everyone but he said I want you to go and sell what you have and give to the poor and the young man the Bible says went away sorrowfully for he had great riches and he was obviously not willing to pay that price but the Bible says that Jesus loved him the scripture the original stresses it Jesus wanted him Jesus longed for him and I read that and said how can that be how could Jesus want someone and them walk away do you know who this Jesus is this is God come in the flesh this is the one who garnished by his spirit the heavens with the stars like a woman would garnish a salad. This is the one who rolled up the earth in the palm of his hands, who scooped out the valleys and heaped up the hills and rolled out the carpets of grass and tacked them down with daffodils and filled the sky with birds and the sea with fish and the forest with the beast. This is the one who raised the dead and multiplied the loaves and fishes. This is the one to whom angels heed. He can have anything he wants and if he wanted that young man how could he simply walk away our Lord could have said the word and that young man would have spun on his heels and goose stepped behind Jesus but our God doesn't work that way and you may not understand this but I am convinced that it was better in God's economy of things for that young man to go to hell a man than to go to heaven a robot an automaton a zombie 
And let me tell you, any, any, any doctrine, any religion, any movement that even for a moment violates your free will, I don't care whether it calls itself Moonies or if it calls itself some brand of holiness, you run for your life. It is not of God. Not only did I make a crisis choice as a nine-year-old child that I would go with Jesus, but I have made a million choices since then. Day by day, I will obey God in this temptation. I will do right. We choose. We choose. God help us to choose rightly. God does not violate our free moral will, our free will. Brother Barr, then that means that there's hope for my lost child. Yes, it surely does. It means, Brother Barr, that there's hope for that spouse that abandoned their responsibilities. Oh, yes, it surely does. Brother Barr, you just, you don't know how, you don't know how far they've gone. You don't know what they've done. I'd be embarrassed to tell you what they're involved in, Brother Barr. You don't know. Don't need to know. When I was teaching at Hope Sound, I have four children. I love them dearly. I would die for them on a moment's notice. One of them is adopted. I do not remember which one, but one of them is adopted. I love them dearly. I was very busy at Hope Sound, very busy in the Lord's work, so busy in the Lord's work that I was neglecting my children and I didn't know it. They looked good. They dressed right. And I thought that's all that counted. And let me tell you something, it isn't. It isn't. They looked good. And as long as they looked good and didn't bring a reproach on my ministry, everything was honky-dory, but it wasn't. When my older son got into his late teens, things began to unravel. He began to rebel against my authority. Everything I would say, he would question. The others hadn't, but he did. I learned very quickly that I was a skillful arguer. He could question my position, my authority, my stand, my rules, and I could ask him two or three loaded questions and nail him to the wall every time, make him look like a fool. I was winning all of the arguments and I was losing my son. And that's a real bad deal. You may not agree with me, and that's all right. But I have done my best since I learned my lesson to let my children know that they are more important to me than my job. They are more important to me than my ministry. That if I am ever called upon to choose between my children and my God, I will choose my God. But that is the only one that I will ever choose above them. And I've been called upon to demonstrate that. If I am called upon to choose between my church or my job or my ministry, And my children, I choose my children. They did not ask to be brought into this world. I brought them in, and it's my responsibility to do all I can, knowing that ultimately they are free moral agents and will make the final choice themselves. 
but it is my responsibility to do everything in my power to bring them to Christ. But I did not know these things like I know them now. And I got very busy. And the communication between my son and I began to break down until there came a time when we communicated none at all. Every even casual conversation became an argument, a debate. And when they were through, I would slip away and cry out to God, Oh God, I'm losing my son. And I would make all kinds of good resolves. And the next time we'd talk, it would again be an argument. Everything I said, he balked. Everything he said sounded like he was gouging me. Eventually, it went far worse. Suddenly, as his life began to fall apart, he began to show the bitterness of his own heart. It has been my privilege to counsel hundreds of people, many of them eat up with bitterness. But I have never, ever, ever talked to anyone or known anyone or dealt with anyone whose bitterness was more deadly or widespread than was that of my son's when it began to spill out. He hated God. He hated holiness. He hated church. He hated religious people. At times he would tremble in his utter frustration because he didn't know how to show his utter despicable hatred for anything religious. He pulled things off that almost sound insane in an effort to simply show religious people with what disgust he viewed them. Things I would not even want to tell you. Unimaginable things. He would have burnt Hope Sound to the ground if he'd have thought there was a 1% chance of him getting by. He hated those that in his mind had robbed him of the heart and time of his father. He began to deal in drugs. There would come a time when he would lie on his back in the middle of a Florida swamp with a loaded gun between his eyes as a drug dealer threatened to blow out his brains because of some infraction in the dealings. He stole money. He was caught. And he was awaiting his trial. And it appeared that he would go to prison. And I could not even counsel, nor comfort, nor encourage, or even love, show love for him in his bitterness. My life fell apart. My health fell apart. I tendered my resignation. I remember one night, very late, while we were waiting for his trial, going 
I was at the bottom of the barrel, at the end of my strength. I didn't even know how to pray. I didn't, once I saw the malignity of his bitterness, it horrified me. It overwhelmed me. And I did not see any hope whatsoever. I didn't even know anything to suggest to God that omnipotence could do to redeem my boy. And I remember one night very late, well after midnight, entering the tabernacle at Hope Sound, lights all off except for one down light at the altar. And I stumbled slowly down that altar, down that aisle to the altar. I had my arms out in front of me like this. And in those arms was my boy. I could not carry him anymore. He was too big, nor would he allow it. But in my heart, I bore my son. But I stopped under that light and looked up at God. And I said, God, I do not even know what to suggest for you to do. I see no hope whatsoever for my son. They will send him to prison. In prison, his rebellion will be increased. I see no hope. But here's my boy. I'm sorry for my mistakes. If there's anything that you can do, he's yours. A couple of days later, again well after midnight, the phone rang. I picked it up. It was my son. He worked down at the rescue squad in Hope Sound. He'd gotten off of his shift, gone out to start his little truck, and it wouldn't start. Would I come and get him? And so I said that I would, and I got up and got dressed, and we lived way up at the north end of Gomez, if you're familiar with the ground. And so I drove this couple miles back through Hope Sound and into the little town and to the rescue squad and picked up my son and we started home going back north on Gomez. I do not know, do not even remember what it was that we talked about, but again it became an argument and something inside of me broke. I do not know what happened. I've talked to psychologists. I don't know what happened. All I know is that something shattered inside of me. And I began to drive faster and faster and erratically and to talk louder and louder. And I said, son, I cannot talk to you. Every time we talk, it becomes an argument. And my boy did what he had to do, a great big tall young man. He took the car away from his daddy before we ran into a telephone pole or off into a canal and he took me home. I do not know what happened that night. The only thing I would like you to know is that it is certain I've never acted that way before or since. It certainly has not been the pattern of my life. I have a dear friend who suggests that I had a nervous break. I don't know. I've seen so much meanness hidden behind that excuse till I am hesitant to use it. Yet I think you who have been to these services know that I have nothing but compassion for those who are struggling with nervous break and this kind of thing. I hope you do understand that I am in no way defending what I did, exactly the opposite. If you think for a moment that I am suggesting that such conduct is appropriate for any man, let alone a preacher, let alone one who professes holiness, 
then you're missing what I'm trying to say. Someone asked me one time, how do you jive that with, with holiness, Brother Barr? You professed holiness. I don't. That's not acceptable conduct for a saved man, let alone holiness. I'm not here to defend it. I would give everything that I own in this world if I could erase that night from my son's memory. If I could erase it from my own, it should not have happened. There is no excuse for it to have happened. But it did happen. We went home. He went to his bedroom and I went to mine. I lay in my bed and I looked at the heaven and I said, my God, what have I done? What have I done? As if our relationships were not bad enough. How will my son ever respect his holiness preacher father again? And I've acted like a wild man. I've acted like an insane man. I've acted like a child. How will he ever respect me again? And I'm going to ask that for just a moment the tape be turned off, please. I have permission to tell my son's story, I would not. All I know is that it happened. And what does a preacher do when he's blown it, when he's sinned, when he's failed, when he's fallen? What's a holiness preacher supposed to do? You do what anybody else does. You get up and you go back to God in repentance and faith and you find out that whosoever will may come daddies that have failed and preachers that have failed whosoever will may come and so I got up and I went out to the couch and I knelt and cried out to my God and in his grace and love and mercy he pardoned and then I got up with leaden step and I went to my boy's room and I turned on the light and there he lay my big young strapping muscular man with his mustache and his tan. I knelt by his bed as he stared at the ceiling, his pillow wet with tears. And I said, Alan, there is no way that I can cover for what happened tonight, no way that I can explain it away. I know that it's going to be very difficult for you to ever respect me again. And all I know to do is ask you if you could somehow find it in your heart to forgive your daddy. And with a moan like a wild animal, he reached over and threw his arms around my neck and tumbled out into the floor. And we rolled around in the floor and mi mixed our tears, cried and hugged. It didn't solve everything overnight, but a healing process began. I do not often get to be in my home church, but a few weeks ago I was there and my son and his wife sang the special. And God came. He's our Sunday school superintendent. And he's talking about going to Bible school that maybe God's calling him to mission work. There are no impossible cases with our God. That boy, that girl, they've gone so far, they're all entangled, and I think you know that I know that there are consequences to every day that you live in sin, and there are entanglements, and there are scars that may never be undone in this world. But as far as God's grace extending and reaching and lifting, there are no impossible cases with our God. Take hope, people. That wayward child 
is not beyond God's grace. Whosoever will may come. Brother Barr, they've, the situation I'm talking about, Brother Barr, it's been so long. They're old. They've lived for the devil for years and years. They've done terrible things. They're not impossible with our God. I think about my grandma and my grandpa, my mother's parents. My grandmother was a sweet and gracious woman. And when I became a Christian all through the teens and in my early 20s, I would witness to my grandma. I would take my Bible. I'd go through the Roman road. I'd read tracts to her. I'd do everything. She'd listen so kindly and graciously. And when I was through, she'd say, Oh, honey, that's so sweet. And never understand that it was for her that Jesus died that it was her sin, seemed to be a veil over her mind. She never comprehended the personal claims that Christ had on her. And the years went by, and she became old. My granddaddy, on the other hand, you didn't talk to him about God. He would curse you. He'd, he'd never went to church in his life, but he'd picked up somewhere some washpot scripture. Do you know what washpot scripture is? I mean, scripture that's kind of close, you know, but just not quite right. I remember one time I was just a boy. I, my, my brother and I were out shooting marbles in the backyard. You know, draw a little ring and shoot marbles out of it. My granddaddy came up, stood there, looked down on us and said, what are you boys doing? I said, we're playing marbles. He said, I thought you were Christians. I said, we are Christians. He said, what are you playing marbles for? I said, what's wrong with marbles? He said, the Bible says marble not. <laughs> I remember when I was in my early 20s and I was courting. One evening I got off work, came home, got spruced up, and was leaving the house to get in the car and drive out into the country to see my sweetheart, the woman that would become my wife, and she was a fine Christian, and we loved the Lord, and we behaved ourselves in our dating relationships. But my mother, just in the humor that was her, as she kissed me on the cheek before I left, she said, now behave yourself, and, and no necking. And she knew we didn't. But my grandfather was visiting with us, and he said, Lillian, what's wrong with that? And my, my mother, of course, was immediately on the defensive, and I'm just standing there. And she said, why, Dad, you know that's not right. And my granddaddy said, you never read in the Bible how Isaac took Rebecca up on the mountain and fed her wine and nectar? And my, my mother couldn't, she just stared, and I grinned, and I left. But I'm quite sure that was the extent of his Bible knowledge, for he knew nothing of God, a wicked man. And over the years, many a time when we would witness to him or attempt to about Jesus, and he would curse you and didn't want to hear. He was a wonderful little man, an Irishman, full-blooded Irishman, little red-headed fella, came over from Ireland, had the temper. I loved him and I hated him at the same time. My mother told of a time when she was young, just a child, a large family, not all the children had arrived yet, and the youngest child at that time was a little toddler named Stuart. They lived not on a farm, but in a country place, and to help feed the children, they had a few chickens in a chicken house, and because of the fox and because of the hawk, my, my grandfather kept the loaded 12-gauge shotgun hung high on the wall of the chicken house where the children couldn't reach it. But one day, little Stuart and his one-year-older sister, my Aunt Shirley, were playing there and looked up and saw the gun, and with childhood curiosity, 
they wanted it and they began to stack up boxes and barrels and they built a stairway and they got the gun down and while they were playing with it in a tragic accident Shirley shot Stewart point-blank range in the stomach and hip with a 12-gauge shotgun blew his hip away my grandfather an alcoholic a wicked man but when he was sober at least he loved his family and he rushed them into the city and rushed the little boy to the hospital and he was given no hope he was hemorrhaging to death he would die but my grandfather the wicked sinner who'd never gone to church a day in his life and knew nothing of God called out to the God he didn't know oh God if you'll let my little boy live and he figured the meanest thing he did was drink because it was when he was drunk that he would abuse the wife and the children and so he said I'll never drink again and against all of the odds Stuart lived though it left him badly crippled and if Stuart is alive today he is a fugitive from justice an escapee from prison but Stuart lived and amazingly maybe a greater miracle than him living my grandfather kept his vow and several years went by and he never drank in fact a new little child had come along the youngest child in the family now was a little toddler named Leslie my grandfather got a job in a distant town in Pennsylvania and was only home on the weekends and one Friday after they'd received their check he was coming home with other men catching a ride they stopped at a bar and went in urged him to do so he said no I haven't had a drink now in several years but they pressed him and so he yielded and he went in and while he was sitting there at the bar having his first drink since his vow little Leslie stepped out into the road and was hit and killed instantly by a hit-and-run driver who was never apprehended so that when my grandfather arrived home he found his little boy dead my mother tells how that she and the other children hid in the woods and listened in fear and trembling as their father raged in the field behind the house and shook his fist at the heavens and cursed God for every vile name that he could think of spit into the sky and dared God to come down and pick on a man instead of little children can't get saved after you do that can you brother Barr whosoever will may come if you think for a moment I'm suggesting that anybody take such liberties with deity you're missing what I'm saying but what I am saying is that like David I revel in the mercy of our God that endures forever the years went by we came up to Pennsylvania from South Carolina to visit the grandparents when I got there I was just a teenager when I got there my grandmother said well well Albert said I've started going to church I found out where she was going it was a large high steeple church one of the biggest biggest churches in the city I didn't figure she'd hear much gospel there but I guess it's better to go there than none at all and so I said that's good grandma and so that night I preached in the largest church I've ever preached in in my life a great big stone edifice I preached a simple gospel message gave an altar call looked down and they had no altar and my grandmother came forward and they took her to an inquiry room and I went with them to make sure they did it right and they did it all right and my grandmother an old woman good but blind to the things of God but seemed almost a literal veil over her mind God who is rich in mercy God who hears the prayers of his children reached down and spoke peace to my grandma I saw it when her face lit up with the assurance of sins forgiven 
we were only there a few days and started our track across the United States. A few days after we left, Grandpa and Grandma loaded their stuff up and headed for their Florida home near Cocoa, Florida. We had just arrived in Japan, had been there only a couple weeks. We were still living in the guest house. When word came that my grandmother, there in Florida, getting elderly and a little forgetful, had gone down and walked across Highway 1 near the Indian River there and had checked her mail, received something from someone, was reading it absentmindedly, stepped out in front of a truck and was killed instantly. Only been saved a few weeks. The mercy of the Lord endureth forever. But my grandfather became more bitter than ever, hit the bottle harder. I doubt that he was truly sober for years. I grew up and got married, took a church. One year I was taking a load from my church, including my associate pastor, to Hope Sound for camp meeting. And as we traveled down through Florida, I told those that were with me, I said, I'd like to just stop for just a moment here. I have uncles and a grandfather that live here. I just run in and say hello, and we'll be on our way. And they agreed, and so I stopped, and I went in. And when my uncle saw me, he said, oh, Albert, we're so glad you've come. He said, your grandfather is down in the swamp, and he is dying. He's drinking himself to death. He hasn't been sober in weeks, and you know how he is. We go down there to try to get him, and he'll pull a gun on us and curse us or a knife but he always loved you, and that surprised me. He always cursed me. He said he always loved you, and maybe you could talk to him. And so I went down into the swamp, and there he lay. He looked dead when I saw him, gray and disheveled, dirty, unshaven. But I knelt beside him and called his name, and he opened those bloodshot eyes, and he recognized me. And I said, Granddaddy, it's Albert. I said, Granddaddy, you're going to die down here. He said, I know it. I said, Granddaddy, I don't want you to die down here. He said, I don't want to die. I said, Granddaddy, would you let me load you up and take you back to South Carolina? Mama will take care of you. I thought he'd curse me as he had in the past. Instead, he said, yes, I'll go. I said, well, Granddaddy, I have some people with me that I've got to take farther south. But if you'll put some things in your truck, I'll be back in the morning and we'll take you. He said, I'll be ready. I didn't know if he'd remember that I'd been there five minutes after I was gone, but I got into the car, took them on down, had my local preacher ride back with me to help drive the other vehicle. Came back, and to my surprise, really, my grandfather had thrown a few things in his old pickup truck, and he was in his mind ready to go. I called my mother and told her we were coming, and we started the long trip from Florida to South Carolina. I did something that you may not approve of, and you may be right. I did the best and knew how. You ever just do the best you knew how? My grandfather began to have DTs. He'd scream and thrash. You could hardly drive the truck. And I was afraid he was going to die as he fought off the snakes and the demons. And I stopped, not once, but many times, and bought him beer and liquor. Maybe I shouldn't have done that. It's the only time in my life I've ever been in a bar since my childhood. But I did the best I knew how. I finally got him home. It was late, and my mother had a doctor's appointment for him for the next day, but we had to keep him alive through the night, and so she put him to bed, and he began to have DTs there, and he would scream and rant and rage. A large house, and I, sometime in the wee hours of the morning, I was praying for my grandfather out in the other end of the house, and I had an experience. I've never had anything quite like it before or since. God witnessed to my heart that he'd saved my granddaddy. 
I got up laughing and rejoicing, and I'd go outside and giggle and laugh and shout and cry and try to come back in and sit down, and I couldn't, and I'd laugh some more. Hadn't even seen my granddaddy, hadn't heard a thing. When I finally was able to come back in, I slipped in, and sure enough, my mother had slipped in to check on her father and found him very weak but cold sober, and he wanted to pray. And my mama knelt beside him, and this old man who in his youth had spit into the heavens and cursed God who'd lived his life in wickedness and debauchery and sin, found that whosoever will may come. I mentioned the other night the conversion of my mother and my father and myself, all in the same service. I was a nine-year-old boy, first time I ever darkened the door of a church in my entire life. My mother an alcoholic, a professional striptease dancer, a chain smoker. My father, in some ways, a good man, neither smoked nor drank, but in other ways, a very violent and wicked man. We came to Jesus in a very modernistic church. I mean extremely modernistic. But we heard for the first time that we were all sinners, but that Jesus loved us, and that if we'd come to him, he'd save us, and that's the truth that the devil preaches it. And we went forward, and they took us to an inquiry room, and after some scriptures if we believed them. We said that we did and God saved us. And I knew that he saved us. In his grace and mercy, he instantly delivered my mother from drink. She'd belonged to the Alcoholics Anonymous trying to get help and they didn't help her. Which is not to say they don't help some people with that habit, but they couldn't help her. But God instantly delivered her from alcohol. And I know that there are people just as well saved as my mama who struggle with those habits. I know that. But in his mercy and grace, he took this poor, ignorant woman and delivered her, delivered her from tobacco. She quit her job. Later in the week, our pastor came by to meet these new converts that had filled out a card. And my mother was rejoicing and overflowing with what God had done. And the pastor was horrified. He said, Mrs. Barr, the devil will make a fanatic out of you. He said, I drink liquor. I smoked cigarettes. Now, when he heard what her job was, even he agreed she should quit. But he did say, he said, you do understand that it has nothing to do with your salvation. He said, you could be, now that you're a Christian, you could be on the, plat the stage performing your act, and Jesus come, you'd go right on to heaven. People, we'd never been to church in our lives, but God the Holy Ghost will teach you some things if you listen to him. God, our home went from a hell to a heaven overnight. God, we always were walking in more light than we were hearing preached. God gave my mama a tender conscience. We had a television. In those days, they didn't print TV guide. They printed in the newspaper what was going to be on the different channels. And my mother would cut that page out and tape it to the wall beside the television. And if she saw anything that troubled her conscience, either in the programming or the sponsorship, and God gave her a tender conscience, she'd scratch that one off. And woe be unto any of us caught watching anything mama had done scratched off. And she kept scratching off and scratching off and scratching off until in any given week we could watch Oral Roberts and Howdy Doody. <laughs> and we weren't sure who was doing us the most good. And so finally mom and daddy just said, you know, so this thing's not worth having. And we got rid of our TV before we knew there was another human being on the face of the earth that had a problem with TV. It bothers me when I see people who hear good Bible gospel preaching and never see anything. My mother became a saint. She had, she was a shouting woman of faith, godly. It took a few years for us to get light. 
Every three months we moved because of my father's career. Every three months we moved to a new base. And each time, I know this isn't the way to do it. It sounds like some kind of a spiritual roulette, but we didn't know any better. We'd come move to a new place. First Sunday, we'd all get dressed, get in the car. Daddy'd bow his head, say, God, help us to find a church. First church we came to, we'd go to, and that's where we'd go for three months. I've been a Baptist. I've been a Methodist. I've been a Quaker. I've been you name it, I've been it. <laughs> but I look back, and it's a miracle how God was leading us. I don't know if early in our salvation, before we had a lot of light, if we'd have walked in maybe to some holiness churches I know, and my mother, with many still of the trappings of the world, had stood up and testified. Maybe she'd had a bad experience. Maybe she'd have gotten the cold shoulder. I don't know. I'm glad God eventually led us into holiness. My mother was the saint of my life. During my teenage years, I would wake during the wee hours of the morning, and I'd hear my mother in the place of prayer. I never knew a woman with such simple faith. Every now and then, about once a week, I pray, oh God, I need some money. <laughs> That's not the way my mama prayed. She'd get down and she'd say, Lord, I need $26.43. And, and she would get $26.43 over and over. I saw that kind of thing. My mother was a godly woman. She was not only the saint of my life, but she was the saint of my wife's life as well. After I'd married and moved away, I did not know it, but our home church began to develop problems. There was a major split. And in the heartache and accusation and turmoil of those horrible things, my father and mother lost God. There'll be a lot of people in hell because of church splits. I had heard nothing. They kept it secret from me. Finally, a day came when the wife and I had a vacation, and we drove the long trip back home. Drove up in the yard, and my father had retired, and they now had a home place, and drove up in the yard there, and we never went in the house. Seemed like we felt when we rode on the grounds that there was something wrong in the air. Went up on the porch, and my mother stepped out, and behind her stood a young man, younger than I was, younger than her son. She said, Albert, your daddy is gone. And I would not know for years whether my daddy was dead or alive. She said, we are divorced and I am remarried. And this is my new husband. I am no longer Mrs. Barr. I am Mrs. Jones. My wife and I reeled back to the car and started the trip back home. We'd pull over to the side of the interstate and fall in each other's arms and weep and tremble. I have strong feelings that if you're expected on a job, you show up. But there were a couple days that I couldn't even go to work. I just cried and cried, and I guess I came nearly as close as I ever have to losing my soul. If my saintly mother can't make it, what's the use of me trying? But somewhere in my despair, Jesus came to my rescue and showed me that when your mom and daddy let you down, he doesn't. And I came through, but there was always an empty void in my heart. A few months later, I was asked to come to Hoop Sound to teach, and we moved. And a few months after that, my mother, the man she had married, was also a military man. And they were posted to the other side of the world, to the Philippines. And the years went by. And once in a great while, 
we would call the Philippines, maybe on a holiday or something, to talk to Mama. But if the conversation even drifted towards spiritual things, you could feel the barriers coming up. You couldn't talk about that. My children grew up without a grandma. And then one day word came that my mother had been diagnosed with cancer. The Air Force flew her to Hawaii for further tests and there it was found that the cancer was vicious and widespread and the prognosis was pretty bleak. They told her that she could have surgery in any military hospital or a number of authorized civilian hospitals and my mother chose to have the surgery in Orlando the closest authorized hospital to her son so that she could for the last time see her boy and her grandchildren. And so there came a day after all of those years when my uncle's car drove up to our little house on James Street and my mother got out. My mother had been a beautiful woman, but the years of sin, age, and the disease that ravaged her body I wouldn't have recognized her if I'd met her on the street. She was cadaverous and yellow and hollow-eyed, except for her stomach, which was bloated with the disease. I do not want to be ugly people, but she smelled of cancer. She was a dying woman. We kissed and cried and hugged. She went to my, with me to my Sunday school class, which functioned more as a church in that environment. There in my Sunday school class, she stood and cried, and told how she had one time been wonderfully saved, but that she'd grown bitter and angry and lost God and had lived for years in rebellion, and now she was facing death. And would the Sunday school class please pray for her? My father, we had reestablished contact after a few years with my daddy, and my daddy came down, and I saw my mother get him aside and tell him that she was sorry for her part in the tragedy. A few days later, my uncle came back and picked up my mother and took her back to the hospital in Orlando to prepare for surgery. A few days of preparation and then the night before the surgery, my mother, who had backslidden so horribly, after all of the goodness and grace and mercy of God, my mother cried out to God and found that whosoever will may come, that Jesus loves the backslider. And when God spoke peace to her heart, once again that simple childlike faith sprang into existence, and my mother reached out for her healing. And so the next day, when the doctors came in to take her to surgery, she said, you're going to find that I don't have cancer. Jesus has healed me. They said, Mrs. Jones, are you saying that you don't want the surgery? She said, no, I want the surgery. I want you to see. They cut her open and sewed her up, and when she came to in the recovery room, said, we can't believe it. Said, there's scar tissue here and there, but no cancer whatsoever. That's been 12, 13 years ago. My mother could outrun me today, which isn't very fast, but it's pretty good for an old woman. I'm not talking about someone who thought they had cancer, people. I'm talking about someone who was dying. Whosoever will may come. There are no impossible cases. That backslider, that unsaved loved one, that wicked parent, 
don't give up people keep praying you may be all that they have going for them at this time don't despair the grace of our God is sufficient oh let's reach out with newfound faith let's go once again with confidence to the throne in behalf of our loved ones and friends there are no impossible cases with Jesus stand with me Thank you for listening to Convention Pulpit, a ministry of Interchurch Holiness Convention, featuring Wesleyan voices past and present. For more sermons or for more information, visit www.ihconvention.com. This ministry is made possible through the financial support of our listeners. You may give online at ihconvention.com or send your donation to IHC, Post Office Box 99, New Berlin, Pennsylvania, 17855 USA. 